Welcome to the Two Sides of the Spectrum podcast, a place where we explore research, amplify autistic voices, and change the way we think about autism in life and in occupational therapy practice. I'm Meg Proctor from LearnPlayThrive.com. Before we get started, a quick note on language. On this podcast, you'll hear me and many of my guests use identity-affirming language. That means we say autistic person rather than person with autism. What we're hearing from the majority of autistic adults is that autism is a part of their identity that they don't need to be separated from. Autism is not a disease. It's a different way of thinking and learning. Join me in embracing the word autistic to help reduce the stigma. Hi, and welcome to the Two Sides of the Spectrum podcast. As an OT who teaches and trains other therapists in autism interventions, I really try to stay on top of research. But recently, I was blown away by some new research done at the University of Edinburgh. The researchers did a study that looked at how autistic adults, non-autistic adults, and mixed groups shared information and built rapport. What they found was that when autistic people were working together to share information, they were just as effective as the groups of non-autistic people. And they reported very similar levels of satisfaction with the social interaction. But when the groups were mixed between autistic and non-autistic people, it left everyone feeling stressed and misunderstood. I'll link to some more details of this important study in the show notes, but here's the takeaway. We have for decades been saying that autistic people struggle with social skills and perspective taking, but the truth is this goes both ways. While autistic people may have difficulty demonstrating the skills expected by neurotypical people, those of us who don't have autism have just as much trouble accommodating the needs and preferences of autistic people. It's a problem on two sides of the spectrum. And while autistic people have been trying to bridge this gap for decades, we neurotypicals have a lot to learn. This research was based on an idea created by Dr. Damian Milton. He calls it the double empathy problem. The idea of the double empathy problem is what really inspired this podcast because I'm on a journey to work on my part of the empathy problem, and I want to take you along with me on that journey. So I actually teach a course online for OTs and other therapists called the Learn, Play, Thrive Approach to Autism. And after reading Damien's research, I had to make some huge updates because like so many, I had been operating on the assumption that perspective taking and social skills were simply things that we need to teach autistic people. When in reality, there's a cultural difference that needs to be bridged between autistic and non-autistic people. This shifted both my framework and my interventions, and I'm very interested in what shifts this might inspire in your work. So in this episode, Damien talks about his path to becoming an autistic researcher, how he developed the hypothesis that led to this research, strategies to help OTs stay on target and in tune with their autistic clients, and so much more. Dr. Damien Milton is a part-time lecturer at the University of Kent. He consults with a number of organizations in the autism world, including chairing the Participatory Autism Research Collective. This interview was long and full of important insights, so I'm going to walk you through it point by point. 
We'll start with Damien's path that led him to study autism. All right, so Damien's son was diagnosed at age two, which led Damien to read more personal accounts of autism, eventually leading to his own diagnosis as autistic in his 30s. So at that point, Damien really shifted his work from studying and teaching sociology to focusing on autism, but he remained interested in social interaction and breakdowns in social interaction. So at that time, and really still today, there was the idea that autistic people lacked theory of mind, which is the ability to understand that other people have different thoughts, beliefs, emotions, perceptions than oneself. And the idea is that if autistic people lack theory of mind, that's where the social breakdown comes from. But Damien heard this theory, and it didn't sit quite right with him. He thought it was incorrect at worst, and a partial explanation at best. So he started to dive in a little bit deeper. Here's Damien talking about his very early research that he did to explore this question of autism and theory of mind. I very much was interested in social interaction, um, but also from a lived experience, breakdowns in social interaction. So initially it started out as a, just a theory and a different explanation. And some of that was also came out in qualitative research I was doing with both autistic children and adults, uh, some of which was work I was doing with the Autism Education Trust in the UK. And we uh, talked to young children in schools, um, and use various materials and techniques for less verbal children. And some of the more verbal children had quotes like, 95% of people don't understand me, and uh, adults never leave me alone, and comments like this. And they showed a social understanding of sorts and a theory of mind, at least a foundational one but also struggles in social interaction but also, and how others perceived them. So to me, it was kind of logical if there was some kind of cognitive difference or perceptual difference, um, then one's experience of social life would be different too. I want to pause here and highlight one thing Damien said. He said, to me, it was logical that if there was some sort of cognitive difference, then one's own experience of social life would be different too. When Damien said this, it sounded so obvious. But I want to linger here for a moment because this is not something most of us, including me, have really worked through before. Imagine an interaction with an autistic peer that feels awkward. You walk away thinking, that was awkward. They didn't have the social skills I expected, or I really felt like they didn't understand me. But what if they were thinking the same thing about you? What happens when we listen to the autistic perspective? Here's Damien. When it comes to social skills, I see that as a negotiated social reality. And so What's skillful and positive to one person may not be experienced as such by the next. So 
what someone may say, oh, I'm very empathetic and socially skilled, and then to me, they're anything but. <laughs> so, so social skills are a negotiated social reality. It's like when you travel to another country and your usual wit and sarcasm suddenly leaves you sounding rude and out of touch rather than smart and funny. It really helps to think about autism as a culture. Then what Damien is saying becomes more familiar. What feels like good social skills for a non-autistic person may actually feel really uncomfortable and unnatural to an autistic person. So then the question becomes, if we insist that the neurotypical perspective is the only one that matters and that autistic people need to learn the skills to fit into the world as we have made it, what impact does that have on their health and well-being? Remedial attempts to try and make autistic people basically less autistic um, tend to me to do more harm than good often. Uh, often just by stressing out the autistic person or making them mask and having the stress of that. Um, and that stress, I think, has to be taken into account with autistic people, well, or anyone. But um, And I think social disjuncture is quite different to... Uh, just lacking a theory of mind as an idea. I want to break this down a little bit. So theory of mind is the ability to understand that other people have different thoughts, feelings, and experiences than you do. And there's a ton of research showing that theory of mind is present in most autistic people, but it might present somewhat differently. Social disjuncture, however, is when there is a breakdown between two people in social interaction. So Damien and I talked about how social disjuncture isn't the same thing as saying that autistic people don't have theory of mind. If autistic people are in a near constant state of social disjuncture with neurotypical people, Damien discussed one thing that can really help reduce the stress. One of the problems there, of course, is there may be a limited connection with others who experience the world the way you do or in a similar way. So um, meeting other autistic people can be quite um, empowering at, if done well or at the right timing and so on. And sharing experiences and someone else saying, oh yeah, I understand that or telling a story in it connects with you um, and I've seen this quite a lot between autistic people even who've met for the first time and that kind of connection starting to happen and uh, at the same time it's not using standard social etiquette perhaps I saw a paper recently saying that autistic people were not empathizing more with each other because they were not showing motor synchrony with each other. And I was thinking, well, um, does one have to copy physical movements in social interaction to feel 
this empathy thing. Yeah, that sounds like a really lim limited definition. <laughs> um, and it's more, this is more how non-autistic people interact. It's like, well, so what? Did you catch that? He just said, so what? It makes me ask myself, if autistic people socialize differently, do we need to start by asking ourselves, so what? Also, I don't know if you guys have ever been in an autistic-only space, but it does feel very different from a mixed space. At two different points in my career as an OT, I've had leisure groups for adolescents who are autistic. And when it was just the autistic kids, friendships flourished and social interaction abounded. It looked different than it might have for neurotypical kids, and absolutely no one cared. But when I tried to include neurotypical peers, the autistic kids on the whole shut down. It was awkward for the neurotypical kids too, and no one was having any fun. It really highlighted for me what Damien is saying. Autistic kids need time to be in autistic spaces. So I talked to Damien about my experience with having non-autistic kids who I referred to at the time as peer models, though I wouldn't use that language now in my group. And here's what Damien had to say. One of the issues for a lot of autistic people is predictability. Um, predicting what's going to happen next and, where, and for those things to be good things or perceived as positive in a sense. And a lot of peers um, will be perceived as a threat, either through past traumatic interactions or these people are too brash, too fast, too loud, kind of. And you can instantly, oh, better back off a bit. And you may not, as you say, you may become more inhibited and shut down from it. And in autistic space, the one thing I've often noticed is how calm it is and how people are kind of doing their own thing or but in a quite uh, calm and usually not very loud way. Occasionally you have a loud autistic person, as it were, and an outburst or whatever. But it's actually quite um, uncommon and totally accepted when it does happen because it happens in a kind of autistic way. <laughs> And uh, but the normal social interactions, if you like, can often be a, sort of almost a competition. If you've ever noticed that in a room full of people, how the volume of voices goes up and up, and there's one or two voices which you can hear above all the others because they need to be centre of attention or something. It's bah, bah, bah. Yeah, and uh, and the autistic reaction to that is to back off, maybe observe and uh, analyze who, who's the kingpin here or whatever. But often you just get overwhelmed sensorily and just need to leave. And so the idea of engaging with anyone there would be off-putting. So. Um, often 
in terms of social skills, it's seen as the autistic person's the one with the problem. He can't fit in. He needs to learn ways to do so better. Often at great exhaustion and personal cost to the autistic person. And how much is that coming the other way in an effort to understand autistic sensibilities or their social ways and what they appreciate? And to me, social interaction ought to be kind of a mutual effort. And, um, and there's so much expectation placed on autistic people socially when they're already struggling in this area and it's interesting what you say because this role model effect really doesn't work so yeah here's someone who's supposedly socially skilled learn off of them what you do and how to do it and it really doesn't work that way um What's often quite useful is meeting other autistic people or older autistic people who can kind of mentor you from that perspective and say, oh, this is what I did or may not work for you. But, uh, someone who understands what you're going through. If you're enjoying this podcast, you'll love my free 50-minute training, Autism-Specific Strategies That Transform OT Practice. In this training, I dive into the places where many OTs are getting autism wrong, why it matters way more than we realize, and four concrete strategies you can start using right away. We even talk in depth about what we know now about autism learning styles. Because when we can shift our perspective and truly consider how autistic kids think and learn, we can start generating more meaningful and effective interventions to help our clients find more joy, independence, connection, and acceptance in their lives. Visit learnplaythrive.com masterclass to start learning right away. So this got me thinking, why do we as a culture seem to have respect for some types of differences or at least be developing respect for some types of differences, but not for neurodivergence? For instance, as a woman, I expect not to be asked to act less feminine or to mask my femaleness. I can also expect to have access to female-only spaces. But why for autism is this different? When I asked Damien, he said, it's because we have put autism into the health issue category. It exists in a medical model rather than in a social model or even a neurodiversity model. And there's a lot to unpack here in this question of social model versus medical model. And this is going to come up again and again on this podcast. But the short version is in the medical model, Autism is pathologized. We must treat the symptoms. We must show progress. So he recommends a shift to the neurodiversity model or social model. And if you aren't sure what that is, keep listening to this podcast because that's exactly what we're here to explore. I asked Damien one final question. What one thing does he want to see more of from OTs? Here's what he said. I think with sensory perceptions and differences there, I think they're quite fundamental in autistic ways of being. 
and understanding that. But trying to remediate them is likely to cause problems rather than remediate them. Um, trying to desensitize an autistic person is generally a bad idea to something they dislike. Um, if it's to do with anxiety, one may be able to work on that in a very gentle way. And, uh, but I still give caution. But if, um, and if something's about unpredictability, making something more predictable can help. However, if something is predictably perceived as awful, that gets embedded quite quickly and stays that way for throughout life i would say so there's some sensory issues i have where i really dislike the sensory input a good example would be parmesan cheese i'm dairy intolerant so i don't really like dairy anyway and so the smell of that stuff can turn my stomach at 20 meters and so if that comes in the room i'll be shortly leaving afterwards <laughs> um, and uh, to me that no desensitization is ever going to make me put up with that stuff um, in a comfortable way for me it's always going to be stressful so I need to avoid it, really. Um, and so I think there's a lot more that can be done in making adjustments around the autistic person and their likes and dislikes and respecting those, because uh, they can be quite extreme, likes and dislikes. Um, and and not having one's interests or sensory lights kind of held back as if you're overindulging. It's like, if you love swimming, then why not have lots of access to swimming, you know? Um, and so when things are felt positively, it can be a very good experience. And it's something I realized a few years ago about myself was that I was very, very tactile sensitive. But there was some things in a tactile way I really liked. It was kind of sensory seeking and other things that I detested and were highly avoidant of. And all of this came from a, a sensitivity. But some stuff was like, oh, that's quite nice, or oh, that's horrible. <laughs> so, and for one autistic person, that can be a very different profile to the next, or the interests that come from that. So, for example, I'm also quite dyspraxic and uh, coordination issues. So many of my avoidances are practical things or tactile sensory things. So the idea of gardening is like, oh, horrible. And yet there was a program on UK TV a couple of years back called The Autistic Gardener. 
about an award-winning uh, garden designer and gardener and how he used his autistic ways in that sense. And so you'll find people with a very, very different personal likes and dislikes that come from experience, really, and how that autistic temperament responded to that stimulus at that point in your life. And, um, and so I guess there's more one can do at an early age to try and encourage interest and motivation rather than avoidance. But sometimes what people do is, oh, that person's finding that thing difficult. So we'll give uh, hours and hours a week on this thing. And you're probably just going to build up a mental barrier and block about this thing and put people off. So one thing I say is, um, say people who may have struggled at maths at school. So if I'm doing a talk or some training, there's always some in the audience who do. And I say, well, how would you like to do 40 hours a week of algebra and simultaneous equations? And the reaction was, I'd run away, I'd fight, I'd scream. And it's like, say, you'd have a meltdown or you'd be avoidant. It's like, this is exactly how autistic people feel when you try and make them socialize with people they'd rather not. <laughs> yeah. um, and so this is uh, a lot more mutual respect for those perceptual differences and social interaction. So one intervention that's often used is kind of cartoon strips and uh, stories and so on. But the way they're used is too often this, you're doing it wrong and you ought to be doing it this way instead, which has no mutual respect whatsoever of what's this situation like for you. And so one needs to start at that point. What's your understanding of this? How are you perceiving this? And that's rather difficult if someone doesn't have the words to express it, which is the case sometimes. So, um, yeah, it uh, means a lot more person-centeredness and humility in practice. It takes a lot of effort sometimes to understand the issues someone might have in a nuanced way. And that can be very difficult, say, if uh, a practitioner has very limited time with someone. Um, say with my son, who's largely nonverbal, I would say with education practitioners, it takes them about half a year to get to know him, uh, to be, get that starting level of a good rapport with him. And sometimes even then, personality clashes and so on, it doesn't quite work. And uh, so it's extremely difficult 
I think sometimes to really understand the that individual. But I think, and it takes a lot of effort, but I think that's the message which needs to be heard. It's um, to not make assumptions, to put that effort in. And, um, and to be humble and to know that your interpretations are quite likely to be wrong. Because often we base them on our own experience. We do. And so non-autistic people, in trying to empathise with autistic people, will make mistakes and think, well, if I was doing it that way, I would be doing it for this reason. And so you hear all kinds of things about autistic people. They're doing this to manipulate you. What? <laughs> what are you on about? Yeah, that's my least favorite hypothesis for, for any child, really, that they're trying to manipulate you. If you let them do that, they get their own way. It's, well, what's wrong with that occasion? <laughs> uh, and so... Um, or imposing what's right or wrong on someone. Um, often the best expert is the autistic person themselves. Um, their own ways to self-regulate. Sometimes they, that can be difficult or dangerous, but often we're the best people at finding the solutions for ourselves. Sometimes not, but... And it's just respecting that um, and really working with someone and listening. Um, and when someone is less verbal, I think um, being very aware of potential sensory issues. And I think that's where autistic advocates and workers can come in useful. Something I think other autistic people often pick up on a lot quicker sort of potential sensory hazards um, and just general things like that that lived experience can be beneficial to practice um, for all autistic people if used well um, also family knowledge um, so my son might not be able to say what his likes and dislikes and sensory needs are, but his parents certainly can give a good description of many years of that experience with him. So whatever the theories and ideologies a parent might have, there's really key information there about that particular individual and expertise and so one of the tricks is working better together um, and all the people around that individual um, and respecting that kind of we all have different expertise and what the uses of that are sometimes i think the practitioners who don't respect that is partly a, a defense mechanism through an anxiety about their own knowledge and expertise so the most yes. humble yes. practitioners are all 
often the ones with the most experience. And so a lot of the problems are social, structural ones, how we organize work practices, things like this, we should be looking at more. And there's so much attention on the autistic person or the autistic child and their development for that matter, when we should be looking at the systems and the people around them a lot more. Because um, that's something we can really do something about. And social environments, school environments, things like this. Um, and I think the ideology of change the child and society won't change is just wrong, wrong-headed. I um, agree. So Damien says that trying to desensitize kids to sensory interventions is generally a bad idea. We can try to make things more predictable, but some sensitivities are going to be embedded for life. And while there may be opportunities to help some kids tolerate some of these experiences better, especially if the issue is anxiety, Damien says we should generally skip the desensitizing and accept that the input is stressful. This means more focus on accommodations and changes to the environment. My personal OT practice has never been heavy on sensory interventions, so I'd love to hear from you. Each week in my Facebook group, Learn, Play, and Thrive, Autism Resources for Professionals, we reflect on the latest podcast episode. I'd love to have you join in and share your thoughts and experiences on this in light of Damien's insight. I'll link to it in the show notes. Damien also talked about how many professionals tend to use our interventions to actually impose our way of thinking on our autistic clients. I love this idea that social stories, comic strips, can be used to learn about how our clients think, not just to tell them how they should think or act. In the end, Damien calls for more humility and person-centered care, to know that we're going to get it wrong and to keep learning about our clients with empathy. He also challenges us to stop putting all of the burden of change on the autistic person. Can we shape the physical or social environment to be more accommodating? Can we set up materials or change the way we teach so that they are more meaningful, given the autistic person's strengths and their way of thinking and learning? The next step for many OTs is to begin to learn autism with greater nuance so we can show up for our clients more respectfully and authentically to empower and support them in their daily activities. And at the very least, to meet them halfway rather than asking them to be the only ones doing the hard work to learn to thrive in this neurotypical world. It's been really exciting for me to watch my students in the Learn, Play, Thrive approach to autism, which is my online CEU course, make this shift. When they truly begin to understand and respect autism learning styles, their interventions and their way of teaching totally change, and their relationships with their clients flourish. I remember when I learned that there was an alternative to behavioral interventions for autism. Previously, I'd been deeply unsettled by observing OTs using behavioral interventions. I'd said that working with kids on the spectrum wasn't a good fit for my personality. But what I meant was, what I was seeing didn't feel kind, respectful, or ethical, and I didn't want to do it. But without these interventions, 
I was floundering and I didn't actually know what to do. Learning to set up the environment, materials, and teaching approaches based on how autistic kids think and learn allowed me to love my work again and to approach it with real respect for my clients. Thought leaders like Damien are the people who create huge shifts in social paradigms. And therapists like you help bring that change to life in your work with clients. Thanks for listening and thanks for the work you do. Thanks for listening to the Two Sides of the Spectrum podcast. Visit learnplaythrive.com slash podcast for show notes, a transcript of the episode, and more. And if you learned something today, please share the episode with a friend or post it on your social media pages. Join me next time where we will keep diving deep into autism.